Hi everyone, it's Guillaume from Startup Basecamp. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. During the show, you will have the opportunity to meet the best climate tech founders, investors, and experts from both Silicon Valley and around the globe. They will share with you their stories and personal journeys into this growing and exciting industry, giving you some insight into the ecosystems that help you to take part in the fight against climate change and benefit from the opportunities it can represent podcast is divided in two small interviews. So in the first part, you will get to know our speakers, their perspectives on the climate crisis and how climate tech is changing the game. Second part of the discussion will be for members of our community who will learn the speaker's secret sauce on how to and share with you their unique expertise on topics such as fundraising, management, strategy and so on to help you to become a better leader in your field. So before we start, I would like to quickly share what we are doing at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech founders in accessing resources and gaining visibility with investors they seek. Our initiatives include a membership-based community platform offering access to a dedicated Slack group with a growing number of founders, experts and investors from around the world and a series of exclusive content such as interviews, weekly job listings, events, and our quarterly online pitch of night opportunity. But more than a place where you can learn, exchange, and grow, we are building a matchmaking service to facilitate connections between our members and top investors and experts in the field. And soon, alongside with other top investors, we will be launching a small fund to co-invest in the growth and acceleration of our members. Finally, all of this is possible because of your support and donations. We are a small self-funded team and we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. So please share one episode with a friend and subscribe to the channels. As an added bonus, we will plant a tree for each of our subscribers each time we reach 1,000 new fans or donors. Do not hesitate to connect with me via social media or email guillaume at Startup Basecamp. Thanks a lot for listening. I hope to get in touch with you soon. And now, let's go for the show. Hi, everyone. In this episode, we are speaking with Nadav Steinmetz, founder and CEO at Numea Ventures. Numea is a UK-based climate tech fund that invests in transformative technologies that advance the transformation to net zero emissions particularly focus on startups within the UK, Europe and Israel ecosystem and invest in both early and late stage companies, helping them grow into highly profitable and successful enterprises. It was fascinating to talk with uh, Nadav, he's a Franco-Israeli, yet spent much of his career in the US and the UK and first considered impact when he founded an NGO as a student. Two years ago, he left the financial sector to form Numer Ventures and truly focus on climate tech on the premise that it was the sector that would provide the most impact. In founding Numer Ventures, Nadav became an expert in battery technologies. He takes us on a journey during the show across the global battery market in an attempt to understand what are its main drivers what it would take for Europe to catch up on the Asian market and how batteries can become more sustainable amidst this electrification revolution. In doing so, we learn more about Numea Venture and their funding premise, what type of investment they make, what 
they are excited about and how you can get involved. The second part of the show, Nadav explains two tips for founders who are fundraising. He also gives a controversial opinion on why work-life balance is overrated. Nadav, welcome to the show. Hi, Nadav. Welcome to the Tech for Comet podcast. I'm super excited to have you here with us today. I believe it's going to be a great opportunity to hear your story and uh, really understand what you guys are up to uh, right now with Numea Investments. So welcome to the show. Fantastic. It's a pleasure to be here, Guillaume. So as usual, it's a tradition here. Uh, before we start, uh, could you please give us a 30 second introduction about Numea Investments? Absolutely. So we are a UK-based climate tech fund that invests in transformative technologies that advance the transition to net zero emissions. We focus on the UK, on Europe, and in Israel, and we invest in both early and late stage companies, helping them grow into highly profitable and successful enterprises. So let's start from the top. Can you tell us a bit more about uh, you know, your personal story and background? What are you passionate about besides supporting and investing in uh, climate tech founders? I mean, what, you, what makes you feel inspired or your best self, as I always ask, like, who is Nadav? That's okay. That, that's a very deep question to start with. So I'll start with who is Nadav? First of all, I'm a, I'm a husband, soon to become a father in the coming weeks. Congratulations. Uh, for a daughter, so my wife and I are excited. Thank you very much. But in terms of my personal story and how I got into climate tech, is that as the listeners and you can probably hear, I'm not English, we're based in London, but I'm half French, half Israeli. I've lived most of my life in Israel. At a certain point, I've decided that I'd like to explore the world and moving somewhere else. I moved to New York. I did my education at Columbia University. I studied economics and philosophy. I also co-founded a non-profit organization that is called One for the World at Columbia that encourages students and young professionals to pledge 1% of their future income to charity. Why future? Because unfortunately, as students, we realize that we don't have an income, but just by attending those top universities like Columbia, Princeton, Yale, Harvard and others, but not just in the States, also elsewhere. So in Europe and Australia, uh, we can have a huge impact post-graduation and help people who live in extreme poverty conditions. So I got involved with that. Uh, and this, I started thinking already about impact and how I can use my personal resources and skill set and energy and time into improving the world. I started working in financial services. I've worked in a few different places. I'm not going to bore you with all the details, but I've worked at Blackstone, a big private equity group, and I've worked in two other family offices doing leverage buyouts and different types of investments. Two years ago, I had a special moment and I've decided this is my time to launch a climate tech fund and invest in companies that I think are disruptive and can become hugely profitable and have a massive climate impact. I moved to London. And then the rest is uh, history, as you say. Fantastic. So tell us about uh, this, uh, I mean, those different like uh, work life uh, experiences. I mean, you're uh, from the, the financial uh, world, like working with Blackstone. Uh, what maybe if you can record one or two pieces of uh, experiences that you gain uh, and in a way gave you an edge to start a, start a firm? 
So working in financial services and specifically in private equity, it's a great school. That's how I, I, that's how I look at it. And it gives you a great skill set and understanding of how to analyze an investment and go through a certain due diligence process and different types of valuation methods. Now, by going and working in some of the big financial institutions or big private equity groups, they focus quite a lot on fundamentals. So they just don't look only specifically on a specific investment, but what are the fundamentals in, within the market in terms of growth, in terms of trends, uh, and this is something that I've also applied to Climate Tech. So we're quite of thematic investors because climate, it's many different verticals. This is the challenge, but it's also the, the opportunity. So from industry and materials to ag and food, to transportation, to digital. So we focus on several themes that we think that the fundamentals are very strong and will only become stronger within time. So you mentioned uh, prior to uh, a bit earlier in the in the conversation that you had this special moment uh, before launching the the fund, but you didn't like elaborate too much on that. Could you maybe like tell us like uh, this hard moment that you that you had, if you can uh, define it as such, that uh, in a way motivate you to launch this climate tech fund and really have this uh, uh, climate uh, angle. I've had a few aha moments, I assume like other investors or entrepreneurs throughout my career. The first one was going back uh, as a student. And as a student, you get sometimes very philosophical and you think about your purpose and what you want to do with your life uh, and invest your time and career. And as, as I was working and encouraging other young students and professionals to embrace effective giving, and think about helping people who live in extreme poverty. The definition by the World Bank is under $1.90 per day. Unbelievable, you know, us who live in the Western world, it's difficult to imagine and grasp that. And, and what I realized, that first of all, the population who live in extreme poverty conditions, mostly in Southeast Asia or Sub-Saharan Africa, these are the people who are going to be affected the most by climate change. So when we're thinking about even what happened here in the UK over two months ago, you know, on July 19th, two and a half months ago, temperatures in London has hit over 40 degrees. This was the hottest recorded day in the history of the UK. The previous one was in 2019 when temperatures hit over 38 degrees. For the people who live in the Middle East or elsewhere, it might not seem very high, but relative to the UK, it's extremely unusual. The UK Met Office has announced a non-essential travel warning. Most public transportation and homes are devoid of cooling systems. So the UK government has really asked people to stay indoors. All of this has a real economic impact. And in the future, those heat waves are only going to increase in frequency and in intensity. And go, going back to what I said earlier, the population and the people who are going to be affected the most by the impact of climate change are people who live in, in extreme poverty. So that was, that, that was my first aha moment. I had many others along the way that I'll be happy to share if you're interested, but that was the first one. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. So uh, let, let's take maybe a, a zoom out and, uh, and take a step back um, 
prior the, the conversation when we uh, we spoke together, you mentioned that uh, you would be interested to uh, to share with us uh, your insights regarding uh, the battery and energy storage uh, ecosystem uh, and the potential uh, to contribute to the, the fight against uh, climate change today. So maybe you can start by giving us some uh, data points regarding the, the battery landscape. Absolutely. What we're seeing today in the world and probably every morning when you open the FT or Bloomberg, you can see the big news, but we're saying a battery EV boom. I, I mean, I cannot give a good example or comparison, but there is an unprecedented manufacturing expansion and logistical expansion towards building battery gigafactories, um, OEMs, car manufacturers, are transitioning from making internal combustion engine cars to electric vehicles. Uh, we can all see the regulation uh, in Europe or also elsewhere. Uh, car manufacturers will stop selling engine cars after 2030, some of them after 2035. So electrification is not a trend. Let me be clear. It's not a trend. It's a revolution. And batteries Going back to your question, batteries are really at the forefront of the world's electrification. So let's maybe go a little bit deeper in terms of the lithium-ion batteries that you need for electric vehicles and why the batteries are the ones that make the cars. First of all, when, you, when somebody, uh, a customer, you, myself, others who are listening to the show are thinking about buying an electric vehicle, you mostly ask yourself two questions. One is about range. How long can the car drive and can that compete with internal combustion engine? The second one is about charging time. I don't want to be stopped in a fueling station where I can fuel in five minutes my traditional combustion car versus a 30 minutes wait where I might be uh, late for a meeting or meeting uh, a friend and etc etc and the third is of course cost but electric vehicles are very close to price parity with internal combustion engine cars my personal opinion that we're going to reach it in the next two years perhaps so going back it's range charging time and cost now the range is, co is correlated directly with, with what we call energy density what is the energy density of the battery? And then we have to dig deeper. We have to speak about the two major competing chemistries. You have LFP, lithium ferrophosphate, which in reality is a, a big chunk of iron, right? Ferro, iron. And you have NMC, nickel, manganese, cobalt. Uh, each one of them offer a different uh, type of properties. So LFP is cheaper to produce, cheaper to produce, better thermal stability. Ferro, you know, iron is relatively earth abundant, uh, but the energy density is much lower. So the range is shorter. NMC is the opposite. High energy density, but expensive to produce uh, and will probably be clip, uh, applicable to premium cars or bigger cars that require those types of properties. This is probably a, a, a good uh, starting point for our discussion. 
definitely. If you can maybe give us like a, a little bit like, um, you know, how many of them are, are produced uh, as of today? I mean, um, probably very uh, correlated to uh, the amount of electric EVs uh, that we put uh, on the road. But what are maybe like, um, you know, the innovation that you, uh, you see uh, coming uh, into these uh, traditional uh, EVs, uh, batteries, uh, chemical-based uh, storage, uh, I would say. Uh, do you see like uh, new innovation? Because uh, clearly extending the, the range is, uh, as you mentioned, uh, one of the three components uh, to uh, motivate the, the consumers to uh, move towards uh, this type of, uh, of solution. So if you can just tell us a bit more like uh, who is working on that, and um, what are the innovations that uh, are upcoming and still cooking in the labs uh, that you probably have so, uh, seen so far? Certainly. First of all, I'm super excited about what's happening in the battery sector. We see a lot of new innovation. In the past two, three years with the SPAC boom uh, and, and so much capital has been coming in into new battery technologies um, and, and new types of innovations that will increase the energy density and really optimize for the next generation of batteries. I can maybe elaborate in a few moments. But in terms of the existing landscape, I mean, the 10 biggest producers of batteries are, are Asian. Uh, the, the biggest ones are Chinese, CATL, BYD. I believe together they're probably responsible for over 50% of the production of batteries. And this is putting aside the battery minerals that go into the batteries with uh, probably Chinese players are responsible for over 80% of the production and processing of those minerals. And you also have very big battery manufacturers in uh, South Korea that we all know them uh, in Japan. So the market is really dominated by them. We see new players, ambitious ones, but new that uh, rise in Europe like Northvolt and others but they're absolutely very far away from the uh, capacity and production of the uh, big uh, Asian players. The last thing that I would add that is co correlated is that it's so interesting to see, in, to see the new players who are getting involved. Today, car manufacturers are super hands-on in terms of getting the right batteries into their cars. They're realizing what I said at the beginning, that the, car, the battery is what is making the car. So we all saw with Tesla and Panasonic, and Tesla became very successful with their NCA chemistry type of battery, uh, but many others like GM, Volkswagen is even going to produce battery themselves in-house. So this is a very interesting shift to monitor. And I'd like to double click on this uh, relation between, you know, this uh, Asian uh, domination of the, of the market uh, versus the, the EU, uh, as you just mentioned with uh, Volkswagen, for instance, uh, EU-based uh, car manufacturing, but uh, also the US. So yeah, maybe you can share with us, like, what is the EU advantages and, and weaknesses in, in the gas of the, the battery 
tech innovation uh, and, and production? I mean, how do you compare uh, versus uh, versus China? Do you see like any major roadblocks to accelerate that and in a way take back uh, this uh, this dom domination uh, from the Asian uh, landscape? Uh, do you have like any major roadblocks that you identified? I mean, do we need new policies maybe uh, to be put in place or is it like lack of funding uh, or maybe lack of uh, innovation and, you know, R&D centers? I mean, what needs to happen for you, according to you, like to accelerate this uh, this movement and go uh, mainstream? And in a way, what is the realistic timeline? Because, uh, you know, all of those uh, capex, um, you know, intensity to put all the production in place takes time as well. So uh, tell us a bit more about uh, about this large question that we have for you. I don't think there is a lack of innovation in Europe or in North America or even elsewhere at all. I do think that in Europe there was a lack of investment for a period of time, a lack of investment. Uh, but the innovation, the work that is being done in different uh, uh, academies and universities is absolutely amazing. In terms of policy, and then I'll go back to innovations, but in terms of policy, climate legislation is getting much better. So in Europe we're talking about the European Green Deal, but in the States, quite recently, we all saw in the news the Inflation Reduction Act that the U.S. government, the Biden administration has announced. So this is a $370 billion, $370 billion um, climate and tax bill that will give long-term incentives to climate te technologies. Specifically for batteries, they have about $30 billion of a program. The IRA are, are announcing and producing all those numbers, so, so the listeners can, can check it out online if they're interested. But in terms of innovations, we see a lot in Europe and also elsewhere. So we're talking about solid state. So for example, today, the typical lithium-ion battery, you have an anode and a cathode. In the anode, you have graphite. In the future, it will, might change to silicon. Again, going back to the energy density, in the electrolyte, all of them use um, a liquid electrolyte, but the shift is clear and maybe a decade from now, I know that I, I might get some critiques because others think before, I may be more conservative here, but a decade from now, the liquid electrolyte will change into solid state. And then you have the cathode, which goes back to the LFP versus NMC. So we see a lot of new innovation from solid state, silicon anode. You probably have 30, uh, 30 40 companies only in the silicon anode space. Um, and solid state, there are many of them. There's the famous ones that we all know that have raised a lot of capital, like QuantumScape and others uh, that became quite public. But there's also many other early stage, very innovative. So in terms of uh, production in itself, I mean, do you think that uh, Southeast Asia and, and China in general have, you know, they, they have like this uh, competitive advantage that uh, we don't have uh, in the EU market today? Uh, Again, maybe some uh, regulation are in place uh, that are too. Um, I mean, the constraint in terms of the regulation on the European market are stronger and, and harder onto the companies regarding the the Asian market. I mean, what is this? Um, I would say. Um, 
difference uh, that you see uh, that makes uh, China and Southeast Asia like more competitive in terms of uh, production in itself? And what is missing for the European to catch up on? So there is many aspects, but I will touch on two. So the first one, they were very quick to make big moves. So if I go back to the two major competing chemistries in lithium ion, LFP versus NMC, they were very quick to test those chemistries, to provide incentives to car manufacturers and battery manufacturers to use them. They provide very strong incentives to transition from internal combustion engine cars to EVs. So it's both legislation, but also being very hands-on in terms of the new technologies that are coming to market. This is one. The second aspect, which is relevant to all different types of technologies, it's the cost. Several things are, uh, uh, in China and also uh, in other countries relatively close to China, like Indonesia and others, where you have certain battery minerals that you have to put in the electrodes or cheaper to produce versus in other places. But it's not only that, they have a very large processing capacity. So even if they don't mine, for example, certain minerals in China, they have big capacity for certain power plants to do the processing and, and go until the stage their battery grade. Uh, we, we can discuss uh, more specifically the type of minerals, but this is maybe for another discussion. I'd like to double click on that because uh, it's definitely something that um, even on the green uh, spectrum of the, the society, people are you know uh, trying to point uh, in that direction and saying that uh, EVs and especially the battery production of it uh, uh, and extracting all of those rare earth uh, minerals are really uh, creating a lot of like damage and, and have a strong impact on the uh, on the environment. So. Uh, what should be done in a way to make it that process maybe uh, greener uh, and more sustainable? Is there is any opportunities to do that? Or are we already uh, in terms of innovation uh, at the best that uh, could be done? Um, I mean, have you identified any maybe solution uh, that uh, are getting to market or should go uh, in terms of like really uh, in a way decreasing that, uh, that impact? The first thing that has to be done and it's being done today, is that batteries should have passports. So the same way that we have humans, we have passports, batteries should have passports as well. What I mean is that when a car manufacturer purchases certain batteries from a big battery manufacturer and then uh, put it inside their, their vehicles, doesn't matter the brand they need to be able to track, for example, what is the carbon footprint of a certain battery? How many tons of a certain mineral have been placed? And this is where the market is going. So I think we're very close into a, an area that batteries will have, uh, have passports, and it's really important to increase the level of transparency. In general, when you think about markets, as you increase the levels of transparency, new players can come along, more capital can be injected and there is a better ecosystem for new innovation. So this is number one. Two, there is new technologies that are being introduced that have a much lower carbon footprint. So they don't involve emissions. 
For example, if we talk about the battery minerals that are needed both for the anode and for the cathode, there's a certain process from the time that it's taken out of earth, let's say, until it's, sell, it's being sold to battery manufacturers. There's many new types of chemical processes that don't involve emissions. Now the market, it's already happening, but the market needs to be able to distinguish between different types of products and what are their carbon footprint. And products with lower carbon footprint will get a higher premium. And this is a way for the market to incentivize players, doesn't matter whether it's in the upstream or in the downstream, across the entire battery value chain to innovate and be more uh, sustainable. So I, I like to, uh, before closing this section and jumping in, into the, the specific uh, of the fund, I like to double click on this uh, uh, really end of life uh, battery. If you can remind us, like um, in average, uh, what's the length of uh, EV batteries uh, in average uh, today? Uh, and then what happened after? Like, what is the, uh, uh, I would say, like process in place uh, to uh, recycle or uh, keep the value of like certain uh, minerals and elements that are part of those uh, batteries. Uh, Sometimes, I mean, I've seen companies like looking at extracting the cells that are uh, not working properly anymore and uh, keeping the, the pack together to use that for different uh, type of application that don't require such a long range or such a, you know, uh, density in terms of ener energy storage. So can you tell us a bit uh, more about like how can, uh, where are we at today and how can we improve uh, that uh, end of the life, uh, end of life, like uh, EV batteries in itself? So when we talk about batteries and electrification, we have to also talk about battery recycling, as you're saying. Because many of those batteries are going to reach end of life at a certain, after a certain number of years. It's still being tested how many exact number of years. Some say 10, some say 15. It's difficult to give an exact number. Um, but what do we do with those batteries at the end of life? We don't want to create a huge waste everybody talks about circularity so we have to be able to take those batteries at the end of life take them through a process that is friendly to the environment so with a low carbon footprint and bring them back into the supply chain so let's go back into the structure of a battery within a battery the most expensive part is the cathode within the cathode you have minerals so let's talk, for example, in NMC, you have nickel, manganese, cobalt. Each one of those minerals are quite expensive to extract, to take them through a process so they're battery grade. So when we think about battery recycling, it's, it's mostly concentrated, also lithium and others, but it's mostly concentrated around separating, dissembling the battery, shredding it, creating a black mass, but also taking them through a process, there are certain ways to do it. Some require heating, but this involves emissions. Other through a, 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 a chemical process with a much lower carbon footprint to extract those battery minerals, mostly from the cathode, and sell it back to either cathode manufacturers, precursors, battery manufacturers, in order to create this type of circularity. 
So this is extremely important. We've seen big announcements in American companies, startups that have raised big sums of money from big players. The same is starting to happen in Europe, but it's very important to create local, local hubs. So these battery recycling plants have to be close to big car manufacturers and big battery manufacturers. You want to one cut transportation cost, but also the emissions involving in transportation. If you, if you look at the, the you know, battery EV uh, productions today, like what is the actual percentage of um, you know uh, batteries that are actually uh, recycled? And I mean, as of today, is that this all recycling uh, process makes sense, financially speaking, or are we still at a very early stage and therefore the cost of uh, recycling and extracting all of those uh, uh, minerals uh, are still very expensive? We're still at the beginning from the transition from internal combustion engine cars to electric vehicles. So many of those batteries haven't reached their end of life because we don't have enough electric vehicles on the road. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, so, so this is one it's important to remember. But in terms of legislation, and the European Union is talking about it publicly and others are doing as well. <clears throat> Sorry. But many of them will require in the future, for example, by the end of the decade, that 20% of batteries will contain recycled content. So this will give very strong incentives to battery manufacturers and other players in the supply chain to use recycled content. Yes, to go back to your question, the cost is higher today, but as we'll see more innovation and more capital and more purpose-driven founders thinking about solving those problems, the cost will go down. As the demand will go up, the cost will go down. I think um, we're only at the beginning of the electrification revolution. So to close this, uh, this section, um, so we mentioned uh, and we touched upon the uh, recycling uh, part of, uh, of it, but uh, what is the, the, the potential for, um, you know, batteries are not maybe suited, uh, uh, suitable for EVs uh, anymore, but uh, do you see any other application where um, those battery cells could be uh, repurposed and used? Uh, and is it something that, uh, do, have you identified maybe some, uh, some companies doing that? Or what's the potential of the market as investors, you, if you look at that or not? So, so there's other applications. When we talk about batteries, it's not just for electric vehicles, for example, stationary storage. So the grid today, as we're going to transition from fossil fuel, so from coal and oil and natural gas towards renewables like wind and solar, which is also it's unbelievable. Huh? The cost of wind and solar went down 70 and 90 percent respectively in the past 10 years. Today, on a per kilowatt hour, Wind and solar are cheaper than fossil fuel. So it's only going to continue. And we're only going to use more renewables in the grid. Then we're going to face what is called the intermittency problem. Because the, the wind the, doesn't blow all the time. And it's, unfortunately, it's not sunny all the time, as we, as we can see here outside in the UK, where I live. So batteries and other technologies can be quite significant in allowing us to store energy in order to use afterwards. 
But when we speak about long energy storage duration, then batteries might be a bit more tricky because again, it goes back to the energy density. You might need to use many battery cells, many of them, and then the cost will not make sense. So there's different startups who, one, are exploring batteries for stationary storage, but there's other who are trying to use other different types of technologies where they think the energy density will be higher and therefore the storing capabilities will be better. Thank you so much for sharing all of those uh, valuable insights. So let's go into the, the specific of uh, Numea. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about like the, the, the story and the genesis of it? And what was the initial gap uh, that you saw in the market that led to the, the thesis behind uh, Numea investment? I've always been very passionate about technologies and about innovation. And I, I mean, I'm not just a, a techno optimist who thinks that innovation can solve it all, because let me be very direct and say innovation is not enough in order to reach net zero. Climate change is a multifaceted challenge that we have to face from many different angles. But myself personally, I've always loved uh, reading about different types of scientific research, new technologies, whether they're going to be economically viable or not, what are their stage. And now, specifically in climate tech, it's not just talking about whether they're commercially viable or not. It's whether they can cut emissions at scale. So these are the two leading parameters that we look at Nomea. So we're, one, we're looking at the emissions reductions potential. And two, of course, we're a, a climate tech fund, so we're looking also to uh, generate outstanding returns to our investors. So we're looking on the commercial, commercial viability of the products. So in terms of like um, founders, uh, and you mentioned like what are the, the criteria that you are looking at, but uh, if you can tell us like what do you uh, offer to the, the, the founders that you invest in besides, uh, you know, capital and how do you find those, uh, those founders? How do you source those uh, incredible uh, team? So, so we offer more than capital, as you're saying. We're, we, we can get quite involved. Again, we're not going to impose ourselves. So it also depends on the founding team and what they're looking for. So we're quite open in our discussions with, the, with our portfolio companies. And we ask them, what do you need? How can we be helpful to you guys? Sometimes the answer is strategy or product or hiring. T today we see an amazing wave of talent that is coming to, to climate tech. Many second time founders that have been very successful in other domains uh, like FinTech, Cyber and others are now pursuing a career in climate tech. Unbelievable, makes me very happy. So we help them recruiting people because talent is very important. We help them with fundraising. We have very strong strategic relationships with other climate tech funds and we're big believers in collaboration. So we like to bring other funds who bring a different type of skill set, a different type of value proposition to the table. And we try and do our best to be founder centric. So it's a lot about the needs of the founders and how we can be as helpful as possible.
So according to you, like which sectors are uh, the most promising for you today in terms of uh, what I call ICR or impact cash uh, return? I mean, meaning building impactful companies uh, while creating highly profitable business. Do you see any underdogs or subsectors of the uh, ecosystem that uh, uh, you guys are looking at right now and you're uh, specifically excited about? Absolutely. Maybe it will be easier if I will give you two examples from our portfolio companies, um, just to give you some insights into what get us excited and what type of in innovation we're looking to invest in. And then I'm happy to share also other views about other verticals and sectors uh, that we're doing certain deep dives. Yeah, definitely. Let's do it. So, uh, so one investment that we've announced quite recently is an Israeli company that is called First Airborne. So they provide remote automated airborne services to both on and offshore wind turbines. So we all know that uh, wind energy is responsible for about six, seven percent of total electricity in 2020. I don't know the updated numbers, but the trends are clear, right? Shifting away from fossil fuels towards renewables and what their cutting edge IP allows, it allows developers to track the performance of each one of the wind turbine with real-time data and no additional cost. So in a world where turbines are getting taller and taller and blades are reaching 140 meters, um, if you can have this type of technology that gives you both predictive maintenance and inspection and gives you a constant flow of information, it had a big, big edge. Uh, so we've invested uh, in, in First Airborne, they've scaled very nicely, they've signed major contracts in Europe quite recently, um, and we work quite closely with them. So this is a space optimizing renewable energy and these types of platforms we find very exciting and interesting. Another very quick example uh, of one of our portfolio companies is Climate Crop. Climate Crop's technology is, is, is remarkable. What they do, they enhance the ability of crops to absorb sunlight and grow faster, store more energy and therefore more carbon and produce higher yields. So in reality, what they do, they unlock, they really unlock the full potential of photosynthesis. And it's been powered by decades of R&D in the Weizmann Institute, also in Israel, and they've generated outstanding results. So they've been able to, to increase the yield of crops like potatoes, tomatoes, canola, uh, by between 25, 30 to 90%. I mean, uh, unheard of, remarkable. And, and, and in a world where 50% of all habitable land is dedicated to agriculture, 50%, think about it, unbelievable. So if you can produce more on a per hectare basis, it's extremely important. So these are two examples, but we're interested in many other things. Yeah, any other like uh, last uh, subsector or subcategories that kind of like is overlooked and no one is really looking at it right now and that you, uh, you think there is tremendous potential? So we spoke a little bit about batteries and battery recycling, and I don't want to be too repetitive. We've done a deep dive into different types of carbon removal technologies. This is maybe one of the most hype areas in climate tech today. Um, so technologies that can suck CO2 out of the atmosphere 
uh, and either store it underground or go through a certain process and sell it uh, to different people, uh, different companies. So we've done a deep dive into CDR. We think it's very interesting. And again, the fundamental thesis here is that reaching net zero also, being, also means being able to remove uh, a few gigatons of CO2 equivalent every year. So there are certain areas in our economy that might take us a bit more time as a civilization to decarbonize, areas that are hard to abate, like heavy industry, uh, production of cement, steel, very complex processes, uh, long-haul transportation. So that's why carbon removals are very important. This is one example, um, but we look quite a lot on uh, ag and food, alternative proteins. There's many, many different subsectors that we think are very interesting, and we see many new innovations. There is really un, uh, uh, we're always amazed and inspired by the level of innovation and creativity of uh, of founders and entrepreneurs. So. As I was mentioning to you uh, at the beginning of the, the, the talk, it's like um, we love to hear what you guys are excited about, but also kind of like at the uh, contrary or like what uh, do you see passing by your, your desk uh, or your screen uh, of like project that you think like in a way don't make sense in terms of like climate impact or potentials. If you have maybe one or two examples without naming any companies of uh, subsectors or categories that uh, you don't believe in right now. Wow. Okay. That's a loaded question. Um, I, I will say, I will name maybe a few areas that we're less involved in and we have our own reasoning and logic. One is the intersection between crypto and blockchain and climate tech. Uh, I, I assume I'm going to upset some of your listeners right now, but, but, uh, but I'll give a few reasons why. First of all, I have no problem with it, subject that it brings additional capital into climate. If it's capable of unlocking additional capital into climate, then uh, obviously I'm in favor of that. Uh, but, but second, uh, I don't think that blockchain or certain applications will be able to decarbonize our economy like so many individuals and new papers that I see uh, are produced every day. Maybe it can play a certain role in carbon markets, uh, uh, whether a decentralized approach can be valuable, but I think in other areas we'll actually have to build certain things and, and transition. Um, um, into, into different types of technologies. So this is one. Uh, uh, the second thing is we also we don't invest in micromobility. So transportation accounts for about 16% of total greenhouse gases. Unbelievable the amount of capital that is going into micromobility. Now, I'm not saying that scooters or different types of solutions are not better than cars. I'm just saying that in a mere we think that we can have a bigger climate impact in other sectors. On top of it, and this is really to finish up, but on top of it, um, if we spoke about battery recycling, then it's, with micromobility, you might have a, quite of a substantial waste problem at the end of life. Um, and this is something that we've all witnessed in certain cities where we walk by. So speaking about uh, about impact, um, I mean, how do you measure impact? 
you know, some funds are putting out there that, uh, you know, we invest only on uh, companies who have the potential to remove like uh, X uh, gigaton uh, by uh, 2050 or 2030. I mean, do you have any like uh, criteria and specific process or framework that uh, you guys are using? I mean, do you rely on uh, scientists and experts to validate uh, the potential impact of those uh, technologies that uh, are often very early stage or early stage that you uh, look at? Uh, to base your investment decision? Absolutely. So in certain cases, and especially when we enter new markets, we use third parties and experts or professors that can help us, one, calculate the climate impact, the emissions reduction potential, the impact on biodiversity, and many other things. Because climate tech, it's, I mean, it's a lot about emissions reductions, but there's also things that go beyond that. Um, and, and, certain, and second, those experts also help us internally go through a certain due diligence process to validate uh, the technology um, and the ability to commercialize this at scale. We, first of all, as part of our screening process, when we speak with startups, we send them uh, a questionnaire. And in this questionnaire, this is our first, let's say, filter to be able to understand what they think is their emissions reduction potential, what is the problem that they're trying to solve, what is the size of the market, so what's the sources of emissions within the market that they're tackling, and then internally at the first step we make some assumptions of, for example, what at scale, at scale, what uh, penetration rate can this company and technology reach uh, at, a, at, at a given market. And this gives us a very preliminary understanding of the climate impact potential of a company. As we progress in the due diligence process, we have a certain framework. Um, but to go back to your question, we're looking for climate tech companies that at scale, at scale can reduce emissions by at least 100 million tons of CO2 equivalent. This is ambitious and we recognize this but we're looking for ambitious founders who are trying to solve big problems. So what's next for Numa Investment? What's next for us? That's a question that I ask uh, myself quite often as well. I think it's one, helping our portfolio companies scale. I, I enjoy speaking uh, uh, with the founders that we back. They get me excited. They always remind me why I do what I do uh, at Nomea. So this is always very energizing. Uh, second is finding uh, exciting companies to invest in. And we speak about companies, technologies, but at the end of the day, it's all about people. And we're looking to invest with people that we think we can go a certain journey with them and be as helpful as we can because as startups and founders and entrepreneurs, it's not easy and there's many ups and downs and this journey can seem at times the best thing and the best decision that you've made and at other times it can be quite dark. So we're going to be there for them in both the ups and the downs and good and in bad. Uh, we're probably going to raise uh, another fund at, at some point later on, maybe in a year and a half, uh, but this will have to be determined. Um, and 
So last question that uh, I have on the, on my side is more a personal question. But what, what's your uh, what's your view on the on the climate crisis? I mean, as I always ask, are we doomed? Uh, and what would you say to to people who uh, you know can feel demoralized by all the terrible news that uh, we keep hearing uh, and the visible consequences that uh, you know we have uh, almost on our daily life now? We have very good reasons to be concerned about climate change and take it very seriously and make sure that world leaders all over the world take it as seriously as we do. But if you're asking me, are we doomed? Not at all. I'm an optimist by nature. I have immense trust and confidence in human nature and in our ability to innovate and also come together as a society and find solutions. Now, again, innovation alone is not enough. From politics to legislation to advocacy groups, every person needs to play his part in order to accelerate global decarbonization. But um, um, I, I get so much inspiration, so much inspiration from founders who are thinking about the next generation of technologies that will enable this global decarbonization. So I don't think we're doomed at all. I'm very optimistic about the future. I think the world that we live at today is probably the best uh, world that every human has ever lived at. You look at the average exp uh, life expectancy of humans, the number of people who now have access to education, the percentage of the global population who now live in extreme poverty is down significantly in the past decades. We've been able as a civilization to come up with so many innovative cures to diseases that nobody have, th have thought before that we would be able to cure. So yes, I think that climate change is the biggest challenge of our generation, but I believe we can fix it. I believe it's an investment opportunity that amounts to trillions of dollars. And I also believe that we have a moral obligation to do that. So how can the community of uh, founders, uh, LPs, uh, experts listening to the show can, uh, can help you? We're always interested in having discussions with different types of players, whether it's investors, LPs, uh, companies, ecosystem players. So this is first of all. Second, in terms of uh, companies that are fundraising early stage or late stage, we would love to hear from you. Uh, you can always reach out to us via our website. There is a certain process for founders and also for investors. We, as I said before, we'll probably be fundraising uh, at, a, at a certain point in the future. So we're always happy um, to speak and share our thoughts uh, about uh, climate tech and the landscape. Um, and most importantly, it's, it's about driving change. So it's about uh, just having those conversations, engaging in debate. We don't have to agree about everything. I'm a big believe, believer of sharing ideas. Even if you think A and I think B, I'd be always happy to discuss uh, and hear your view and I'd be happy to share mine. Any question I should have uh, asked you and that I did not for this uh, first part of the uh, interview? No, I, I think uh, nothing that I can think of right now. 
Thank you so much, uh, Nadav, for uh, your time, incredible insights, uh, and really uh, all this uh, effort and energy that you, you put to uh, support uh, climate tech founders and uh, helping them to, uh, to build a, a better and cleaner world. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you very much, Guillaume. It's been a pleasure. Hi, it's Guillaume again. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. As I said, do not hesitate to share an episode with a friend. Also, if you value the work we do for the climate ecosystem, here is how you can contribute to it. Today, I'm asking for your support and a donation or sponsorship to make the work of our self-funded team more viable. Even a small contribution means a lot to us. In any case, I will invite you to subscribe to our channels and visit our website startupbscamp.org to discover more episodes like this one and get your membership to access all our members' exclusive content. So remember, all of this is possible because of your support and donation. And we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. Let's keep in touch and I hope you will enjoy our next show with us.